You're listening to Deeper Magic. It is killing me right now. It is, <laughs> it is killing me right now. She's not only everywhere all over the globe right now, but now she's in my head with her music. I mean, Taylor Swift is literally everywhere. Yep. And we were watching Dancing with the Stars last night, which is the, this is the first time I've ever watched a season. I think they have like 5,000 seasons of Dancing with the Stars. Oh my gosh, so, yeah. So the stars they find right now are mostly just YouTubers. There's there's no that actual stars yeah. left, but but it's still a really <laughs> fun show to watch. And it was Taylor Swift night last night and now Paper Rings is in my head. Yeah, and that's the thing with like Paper Rings in particular is that no matter what you do, that will be stuck in your head forever and ever and ever. Yeah, I decided, and I'm not sure it's the right approach, but I decided to just own it this morning when I was peeling potatoes for Thanksgiving. I just said, you know, I just said Echo or Alexa, whatever, Paper Rings. And and let's just say it more calcified Paper yeah. Rings in my head than getting it out of my head. No, I that makes that's it that worse. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The other one that gets stuck in my head a lot is 22. Um, I don't know if you know that one, but it's really I, good and we should listen to it. Um, cause all of those rants that you will go on about, about like the confusion and disorientation of like the early twenties and graduating college and all of that, that's literally what this song is about, where it's like, this is both the best and worst time of your life. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think she actually, one of the reasons why she's so popular, there's a lot of reasons for it in, mm-hmm. in fairness to her, but I think she, she tends to have a message for people that seems to intersect with how they are experiencing their life. And yeah, so because absolutely. so many people in their twenties are experiencing this massive disorientation and of course with inflation and everything with it, you said something today just about uh, maybe wanting to look at getting a house and there's oh, really yeah. almost no way for 20, when your mom and I got married at 23, we weren't that far away from being able to maybe purchase a house. I think we finally, we got our yeah. first town home for like $92,000 that's wild. It wild. What? It was wild. But if you go back a generation, my parents were building a house for like $42,000. Right now, you guys, there's, I mean, you you said what, you're going to rent forever? That's pretty much yeah, the way it is. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because I don't know that I can ever afford to actually buy a house. And it's funny that you say that about like building a house for 42000 because there's a lot of like um, memes on the internet and whatever about like how, oh, we're renting forever. And like the narrative about our generation is that none of us want to work hard and whatever. And it's like, well, I'm sorry that you were able to buy a house for three nickels and a basket of cherries <laughs> in 1962, but that's not us anymore. <laughs> so true. Well, and not only can you not rent, you have to get 11 to 15 roommates oh, just to easily. be able to afford rent yeah. anywhere at all. Absolutely. Um, there's a show, New Girl, that I really, really love where right. there's like five roommates in one apartment building. And it's still talked about how like that's unrealistic that they would have a, an apartment that size in L.A. for with five roommates. They're like, there's no way they're able to afford that. But all of them have like full time jobs. Like one of them works at like a high end corporation. One of them is like a principal of a school and whatever. And they all like can't afford to live without roommates. Yeah, for sure. Well, and getting back to Tay Swift for just a second to see what I mean, I'm so relevant. Yeah. I just said. Sure. Tay Swift. That, no one actually calls her that. No. That's okay. <laughs> so maybe I'm not relevant after all. No. But I think, it, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know I enough will. about her. But yes, I know you will. <laughs> uh, I don't know enough of her backstory, mm-hmm. but she sort of got herself outside of all of the music label industry stuff, right? She's not beholden to an actual record label, record producer, record kind of company. I'm not even sure they're called Mm -hmm. record companies anymore, but she's not beholden to a music label when she's bringing out her annual album. She has like a thousand albums in the last year. So yeah, is is that true? I I don't know. I don't know for sure if she is like 
outside of a recording label or anything like that. I, maybe, I don't oh, think that that's maybe I'm real. Confused. Maybe it's that she's outside of like somehow the the ticketing stuff. Doesn't she do something unique in the concerts where? There, uh, to make yeah, sure everybody the thing can that get you're a thinking about, um, no, because there was actually there was a lot of um, problems with that with um, Ticketmaster, which has been a, a huge issue when tickets were coming out for her concerts. For sure, um, like it was a mad scramble to get them, and it was like an arm and a limb, and like your first three children to try and get a ticket. For and sure. so, like, and that was on Ticketmaster, not on her. Um, but the thing that you're thinking about with the record labels is that she was part of a record company for a really long time that took advantage of her and her uh, music and yeah. her popularity. Um, they dictated what she could put out, what her image had to look like, what and like how often she could do things, how she could explore her music, like all of this stuff. There there was so many like constraints on her. And then when she would talk about wanting to move away from that and kind of have control of her own career and all of that sort of thing. They were like, well, actually we own all of your music. And so if you break from us as a record company, we own your music and you can't use it. Um, and so that's, that's what it was. And then she was like, you know what? Fine. And broke from the record company and then started re-releasing all of her old albums under Taylor's version. And now instead of there being like 12 tracks, there's usually 25 to 30 tracks on her New albums, um, people have been boycotting the old albums. They won't listen to them anymore um, because it's giving money to the record label instead of to Taylor. It's a whole thing. It was super impressive. Um, And in like the last, I think we were looking at it last night and I think we said in the last four years, she's had four original albums and four re-released albums, Mm. um, which is wild. Mm -hmm. Like that, that is unprecedented in the music industry. Well, I, th- I think then given that backstory, among the things that seem impressive to me when she shows mm-hmm. up in public and why I think she's having the success that she's having is that I think people perceive her right or wrong. I think people perceive her to be authentic. Yeah. Now, I will say she has either mastered the brand messaging of being authentic because, pe- I mean, all the studies show people mm-hmm. want authentic people. But typically speaking, when you are beholden to something, and especially when you're beholden to money or to an organization, you can try to be authentic, but that's different than actually being authentic. And and when I was on the radio for the extended period that I was, there are so many good things that happened as part of that radio ministry. But one of the things that was so hard is that behind the scenes, the hour or two of content that I was producing daily as a a morning show host was it had to be messaged and it had to be Mm -hmm. branded and it Mm -hmm. had... I was always beholden with multiple filters on my mind about what I could say and couldn't say. I think very similar to what you described Taylor Swift as I'm, I'm not comparing myself to Taylor Swift. <laughs> I, I'm comparing to the idea that you're beholden to what somebody says you can and cannot say. And, and yeah. I think I don't give the sense and I don't know her inner world, but when she just had a quick message through video on Dancing with the Stars last mm-hmm. night, it just seemed like a normal person talking about normal stuff. Absolutely. And she wasn't thinking, this is my opportunity to get my brand out there. So either she is so perfectly mastered the art of authenticity and isn't actually authentic, or I think it's probably more likely that now she, that she's not beholden to a bunch of stuff, she can just simply be who she is. And yeah. I think that's what people are responding to. Honestly, I think the generally speaking, the American Western evangelical church Mm-hmm. could learn a lot from Taylor Swift because the church is trying to message and brand so often. Yeah. And I think people are just longing for actual conversations, actual authentic people, instead of people trying to build their ministry 
through branding, just like musicians do and all of that. So it, I don't know. She's fairly compelling. I have to say, I don't, I don't think that, I mean, her music really taps into how people are experiencing the world. I think in a lot of ways, I don't think she offers much by way of how to organize your world in yeah. terms of how to understand your world moving forward. So it's just pure entertainment, but I, it is, it's pretty compelling to watch. Yeah. And I think with the authenticity piece of it, I, I kind of think it's a both and where I think she is a genius at branding and marketing and cultivating an image and how she does all of that. But the thing is, is that because she has reinvented herself musically so many different times, I feel like at this point we, as a, like, I was going to say we as a society, that feels really pretentious, but like, I, I feel like the fan base has seen so many different aspects of her and of who she is that now we kind of have an idea of like, okay, when you put all of these pieces together, here's sort of the idea of who Taylor might be. Mm -hmm. And I think in the middle of that, the thing that I really, really respect is that even though she has reinvented herself so many different times, all of them feel very distinctly Taylor. None of them feel false. Um, and also that in the middle of all of this, like in the, in the middle of her ridiculous fame and her musical achievements and like all of these things, um, there was a, a clip that I saw the other day that actually almost made me cry where early on in her era's tour, um, which she's, uh, I think she's in South America right now, but, um, early on in the era's tour, there was an eight minute standing ovation in like the middle of the show. And it was crazy to watch her receive that because it was kind of for like the first 30 seconds. She was like, okay, yeah. And then like sort of tried to move on to the next song and everybody was like, no seriously and just kept going and she like took out like the whatever the in-ear things are that um, musicians all have on stage she took them out and she just cried on stage for eight minutes while everybody just applauded and it was just this thing where we were like no it still feels like she's very real it feels like she's very humble um it and it feels very playful between it does. her and her audience as well where it's just like this is just what she loves like there's no weird pretentious like I'm gonna be the best of the best of the best of the best. She's just like I just love doing music and this is what I'm gonna do and I'm just gonna be there for people. Yeah, I mean, I, again, either it's antichrist level of deceitful manipulation, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's either that level where you just can't see through any of it, or mm -hmm. because she is again outside of the constraints of, of a bunch of people telling her what she has to do and and manager. She can just be herself. And that is compelling. I think people are so weary of being manipulated. Yeah, In almost every walk of life, I think that we are getting manipulated, whether it is in our business setting, mm -hmm. whether it's in relationships that we have. Uh, the church definitely manipulates by the way they structure services, typically speaking. And again, this isn't every church, but a lot of churches will yeah. will do enough demographic analysis to arrange the service in such a way to manipulate certain kinds of outcomes, which isn't different than walking into Target or yeah. Walmart or whatever, where they have psychologists putting on end caps, specific brands mm -hmm. and specific ways to market the brand. It's all about manipulation. And I just think that's why she's seen by gazillions of people right now as this breath of fresh air is the perceived. And I, I do think willing to be wrong, but genuine lack of manipulation that's yeah. going on. So I, I'm sure she knows what she's doing and she knows that she wants to keep that as as part of who she is because people are responding to it. But boy, it, it, it like I said, it just is so refreshing when you're in any kind of relationship that doesn't involve some kind of manipulation because we, we all feel it. You can't always name yeah. it, but you get, I just I think we just get so sick of it and our souls are just really weary 
because mm-hmm. everybody has an agenda for us. Yeah, absolutely. And and then just the last piece of it before we maybe get into some of our other yeah, for, sure. for this episode um, is, and I can show you this song after after we're done recording, but there's a song that she has on one of her, I think it's her most recent original album, so not one of the re-releases, um, is Midnight's. And there's a song on it called Mastermind. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, in the era's tour, as that's been happening, this song has kind of taken on a new meaning as she's been playing it for these crazy audiences um, that it is much more a love letter to her fans than anything else. And it's just this really beautiful song where she she talks about how she's like, every step of the way I have like plotted and schemed and put all of these pieces together and tried to build this thing from the ground up and I turned around and you guys were just watching the whole time and you knew the whole time that that was what I was doing and you decided to play the game with me anyways. Mm. And it's just this really beautiful, like her being like, I thought that I had to strive so hard and like trick people into liking me. And then she was like, but as soon as I just admitted to everybody that that's, that it was a brand, that it was a market, that it was a like, and the difficulty of the music industry and whatever that she was like, no, you guys knew that all, all the time and you were here anyways. Yeah. Um, and so it is that really beautiful authenticity where she's like, oh, I don't actually have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something in that song, too, that I just think is really beautiful. Yeah, it's it's really true. Well, let's get into sort of our, our last, I suppose, episode on the on Hagar series. On a totally so, different yeah. note. <laughs> yeah, I just, just know that as we're getting into this last bit of content from the Hagar story that uh, that paper rings is going to be looping through my head oh, the yeah. entire time. You just it's stuck in my head, too. Can't get rid of that. Well, we're glad to be doing the fourth and final installment of the Hagar yeah. yep. series. You and I did a little bit of work, preliminary work before then we had Rebecca rejoin us the, for mm-hmm. a very long episode that we ended up splitting into two parts, Two parts, which was so fun. We yeah. Had such a good time. And I'm excited to see, I know you've got three or four last parts of the story that we want to get into and, and what I've appreciated about this and been saying some of these things in the classes that I teach is that there's such a difference between biblical familiarity and biblical literacy and I think what I mean by that, well, I know what I mean by that. <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> what I think I yeah, mean by my like, own in words my personal opinion, just well, said aloud. Yeah, whoever, who, whose opinion would that be? Mm-hmm. So uh, what I know about I was going to say God's opinion, but that felt yeah, very mega churchy. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I don't live in a one-to-one relationship God's with God's opinion. opinion. <laughs> so in my, in my classes, what mm-hmm. I find often is that there's a certain level of biblical familiarity that is pretty common and pretty typical, meaning that you might be aware of the stories, some of the events of the stories or a teaching or a passage of scripture from Paul or something along those lines. But it's really different to be familiar with a story versus being literate uh, of a story. Meaning what does that story mean? And there's two problems with that. One is that it takes a little bit of work to get into the mind of the people who wrote scripture as reliably as possible to understand what they're trying to communicate. But also too, we're often told the story in a certain kind of way that I think, at least from my experience for many years now, many times the ways in which these stories get framed are not at all consistent with what's going on in the story. So sometimes I just need to understand what the story is because I've never actually studied it. Sometimes I need to sort of break down how I understand the story in order to then understand it on on its own terms. And that happened to me recently with the Jonah story where Mm -hmm. I had to help preach through that in, in a church setting. I realized I was familiar with a fish and I was familiar with the prophet <laughs> and I was familiar well, with a Nineveh, yeah. with a Nineveh and, and in that, but I didn't know much about the story and finding out so much about all that story. This Hagar story is much the same way. And as Absolutely. people have been listening or 
thinking about the Hagar story, you heard some comments from somebody that said, what are you possibly going to do four weeks on in such a small passage? But yeah. boy, it's all in there. It's it's crazy how much is packed into this. Um, really quickly about the Jonah stuff. Yeah. I will never forget walking into the living room to you watching a Loch Ness Monster conspiracy video. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on? And the only explanation I received for that is that you were preaching on Jonah the next day. I was like, why are you watching a Loch Ness Monster conspiracy video? And you were like, because I'm teaching on Jonah tomorrow. And that was the end of the conversation. And I just think that was really, really funny. Well, and let's be clear. There can't be a conspiracy when something is actually real. So I, I we're still, not getting we're, we won't again. do the Jonah story right now, but I am certain the Loch Ness Monster is okay. real and I have biblical support for all that. But that's maybe we'll do a Jonah series sometime and uh, and and you'll you'll see you will see the truth mm-hmm. that it's not only a Loch Ness Monster, but now I, I have reliable, incredible evidence that Sasquatch and Yeti are, oh. are part of the... Actually, less so. The Loch Ness Monster, I'm persuaded of, but I'm not sure of the other ones. Anyway, continue. Here's the thing. When you said that you have biblical evidence for that, the only thing that happened in my brain was, we're not talking about Hagar anymore today. We're talking about the Loch Ness Monster. I want to know what biblical evidence you have for that. Not just biblical evidence, but then like the original saint who brought Christianity to Scotland ran, St. Columba, ran into a a big monster that he chronicled in like the sixth century. I was thinking St. Patrick and the sea serpent. That's what I was thinking. Well, that is, see, there's all kinds of stuff. We'll have to get into that for another time. Okay, back to Hagar. That's a a later episode. (laughs) Yes, for Um, sure. Okay, so for Hagar, um, first of all, one of the things that I was thinking about is we were talking as we were kind of planning out how we want to go about this episode. We were talking about how everything is linked together. Everything in the Bible connects to something else. And if you are reading things in isolation, you are not understanding the entirety of the implications of a passage. Um, And part of that, too, and like this is maybe a weird example, but it's the only example I can think of in the moment, is if you watch like the last trilogy set of Lord of the, or not of Lord of the Rings, of Star Wars. Yes. Um, the most recent ones, which- With Rey I have and, and all those people, Strong right? feelings about those. Yeah, but, me too. Um, but it would be like watching those last three movies without watching the first, like the original three, right? Or vice versa, if the last three had done justice to the original three storyline, it would be like watching the first three without having the culmination of the last three. Again, in a universe far, far away where- those did justice to the original three, but it, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, you can't take it out of, out of context. You can't just watch like episode five. You have to watch episode four and episode six in order to understand what's going on and to get all of the emotional, intellectual, spiritual implications of what's going on there. Um, yeah. And so you had a thought. Yeah. On well, no, I'm so glad you're saying that. And I haven't heard that analogy before, but that does really work for me. Mm-hmm. It would be really hard to understand or even enter into the emotion. If there is some of episode seven, eight, nine, Mm-hmm. If you haven't understood the other episodes, and I think hermeneutics is the fancy term for sort of the science of getting into scripture, yeah. and I think you, everybody has a hermeneutic. Everybody has a way in which they approach scripture, and I think the most common way that people become familiar with scripture is to read a story in isolation, or to have a verse that's on a plaque that gets pulled out and becomes your life verse, or maybe get. Uh, Oh, you sort of get taught or instructed in, in 15, 20 verses, maybe as part of an Awana program. And I, Oh my gosh, I forgot about no, that. No, right? And I, I earned no badges in Awana. No, you, you did not. Sorry, continue. It's like whoever has memory skills gets all the badges and becomes a super Christian. My little ADHD self was like, what are verses? Yeah, for sure. Well, and I, I used to, I, I would try to be fairly um, diplomatic about some of those things, but I think I actually wouldn't say that 
Well, that's a helpful way, but there's a, there's sort of a different way. I think it's actually mm-hmm. an unhelpful way because it teaches us a hermeneutic that the Bible is all of these split up passages of scripture that can be pulled out. And then we really run the risk of misunderstanding those passages. Absolutely. So when people sort of pressed into my hermeneutic, because that was what I had and said, we need, you need to be shown how to understand scripture. Mm-hmm. Part of it is exactly what you said is that these themes repeat themselves. And, and I think if somebody did a theology of scripture, the best way to approach that would be to pull out the 15, 20, 30 themes that just keep playing themselves out over and over again. And I think you'd have a pretty good understanding of what kingdom life is if you approached it that way yeah. versus just ripping out passages and stories and verses out of context. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So Hagar, uh, what do we have for today that you want to get us into? Yeah. I want to do a quick recap of what we talked about in our first part sure. of this in like our deep dive into the Hebrew. Cause we covered a lot of ground there and we're going to cover a lot of ground here. Um, so first of all, again, I would recommend having your Bible in front of you, maybe a notebook to kind of jot stuff down. Cause there's, a, there's a lot in here and it's hard to keep track of. Um, I've got my own notebook in front of me cause I can't even keep track of it. Yeah. Um, people often play podcasts on like double speed, maybe play this podcast on half speed. <laughs> yeah, so it's please. like, and here is Hagar <laughs> going out to, I mean, it'd be a terrible way to no, listen. Seriously. It's so boring, but yeah, maybe that's absolutely. the way to do it. Um, so a brief recap of what we talked about in the first part of this is the idea of, um, Hagar's name and her situation. And so the idea, um, that she is a, female slave named stranger who has not only been sold out of her homeland, but also out of the land that she was sold into. Now they're in the wilderness. So she's like isolated on like 87,000 different levels. Um, And then in the midst of all of that, um, she is chosen to be the, um, be the one who brings forth Abraham's line that is promised to him by God at this point, he's still Abram um, and Sarai. And so she is chosen to bear Abram's child. She and Sarai then start to not get along for a variety of reasons. It's kind of a brutal situation for both of them. Um, And so in that moment, uh, Hagar leaves um, and and flees into the wilderness, which we have talked about as a place where people come face to face with God. Um, Some of the different implications of that. And, oh, there was another piece of it that was really important as well. Oh, that God comes to her in the wilderness, first of all, that as a female Egyptian slave who has now run away and is in the wilderness, um, she does not follow the God of Israel. She does not follow the Abrahamic God, um, which at this point, weirdly enough, like the God of Israel isn't even a concept because that people group isn't really there yet. Right. Um, But she, this is not a God that she follows or a God that she worships. Um, And he comes to her in the desert and and asks her, where have you come from and where are you going? And he also identifies her as Sarai's maid. So he kind of tells her the answer, even just in asking her. Um, and this is mirroring that moment in the garden when God comes to them and says, where are you? Um, and so this is a theme. This is a repeated pattern that we see over and over and over in the Bible is God coming to people and saying, can you recognize where you are? And are you going to trust in your judgment and your understanding, or are you going to trust in me? I think if we can just stay on that for just a second, I think yeah, that's so totally. important because I think a couple things we can say about this. It's really compelling to me that she was not seeking out God or even aware right. of who this God would be to just understand that she's out in the wilderness and that God is coming to her mm-hmm. and coming asking her questions about her perceptions of God. I, it just what that does as opposed to 
God's sort of being removed or remote in the heavens. And we have to sort of push the right button, pull the right chain totally. to somehow get Pray God's right attention. Prayer. That I, I just, I can think of, a, of so many people that I know that understandably maybe have walked away from the church version of Christianity and maybe aren't even pursuing the God of heaven anymore for very understandable reasons mm -hmm. that your pursuit of God does not at all uh, shift or, or motivate God to then pursue you. God is just going to pursue you independent of that yeah. and, and ask some questions that are just lovely questions about that. And under, and to have that framework of God, I think so many people are trying to get God's attention or ignoring altogether. God is just, he's moving towards people. And I know you're going to talk about it later. Mm -hmm. Often the more unexpected people are the people to whom God is moving. So, yeah, absolutely. And really briefly about that. Um, one thing that we were talking about the other day is in Psalm 23, when it says, surely the goodness and kindness of the Lord will follow me all of the days of my life. That word follow isn't actually the word follow. Um, it means chase, persecute, pursue. I love that. And so the implication there is that if you don't want the goodness and kindness of God, you're going to have to be actively running away from that for the entirety of your life because that thing is common for you. For sure. And, and goodness there is the word tov, which right. is the word good from Genesis 1. And we've done episodes in that before, which just simply means God's way of life, meaning mm -hmm. that God's delightful, beautiful way of life is going to be actively chasing and pursuing after yeah. you. And that way of life may be different than what we think is a good way of life in the world, but it's going to be the only way of life that actually is going to bring some kind of peace. And that's just going to chase us and chase us and chase us. It's an incredible picture that's in the story and mm -hmm. a theme, like you said. That's all throughout the biblical text. Yeah, absolutely. So to get into all of this, I think that's kind of where we left off. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and Hagar then turning to God, um, she does the opposite of what happens in the garden. She faces God. She admits that, yes, I am Sarai's maid. So she's able to recognize like, okay, this is the role that I have played in the story so far. And she answers his question and she says, I am fleeing from the hand of my mistress Sarai. But she doesn't say where she is going. And so it's kind of this beautiful moment where she faces God. She is able to say, yes, I recognize what you are asking me. Here is where I have come from. I'm not blaming Sarai for my circumstances. This is about me and you, not about me and Sarai. And where am I going to go now? And she leaves that question open-ended for God to tell her where she is supposed to go next. Um and so give me a moment to Which pull can you up. imagine, by the way, like just being willing That's to go wild. wherever God says is next because he's going to say to her so mm -hmm. where she ends up having to go is not exactly your best life now. Yep. Yep. And so, yeah, I think we left off in verse eight, which is really funny because verse nine is the answer to her question. Um, so verse eight says, and he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, which we talked about in the last episode is usually a way that people ref will refer to God. So it's not necessarily an angel or messenger. It usually is like actually God. Um, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Mm. Um, and so I think the thing that's really interesting here in particular, I mean, first of all, in the word submit um, and the idea of submit yourself under her hand is I believe that word, yeah, it's humble answer and afflict yourself to her. And so it's the idea of, okay, you need to go back and kind of accept the circumstances that you are in and accept the consequences of what has happened until this point, regardless of whether or not it was your fault. Um, what is essential here is that 
is that you go back and you put yourself back into that situation. Um, however, the thing that I really, really love is is that word return um, is the same word that is used for repent. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if we've talked about this yet on the podcast or not, but kind of the way that the Bible thinks about sin and repentance um, in the idea of the original Hebrew is that sin is more this idea of missing the mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that I have heard it explained is uh, in two separate ways. One of them is the idea of like in archery, where if you're aiming at a target and you miss it, you have to adjust your aim. Mm-hmm. And so that adjustment or that turning, right, quote unquote, is um, the word repent. Mm-hmm. And so it, it literally just means you've missed the mark, try again, refocus your aim. Um, and tr- and keep aiming for that target. And yeah. So that's the idea. Yeah, and the mark being missed there is just, again, it's God's tove. It's God's mm-hmm. intention. It's God's way of life that we're meant to live in. And if, if the way we're acting or talking or being or whatever is missing that mark uh, and doing something different in the world, yeah. you just turn and, and you re-aim to your point. Yeah, and I think there's something so beautiful and gentle and forgiving in that because then it's, if you, there's such a different implication between you have sinned and you have missed the mark like those are two completely different things where one of them is very much this angry judgmental God who is going to like Zeus zap you with lightning into the pits of hell. And the other, the missed you, you've missed the mark. I always have kind of pictured that as like, okay, he goes and picks up the arrow and brings it back to me and is like, okay, try it this way. Like try it just a little bit to the left. Mm -hmm. Right. Kind of idea where it's this very gentle guidance, this gentle teaching this like, Hey, it's okay. You missed it. Let's try it again. Um, And I think that's why we see this pattern repeated so many times in the Bible is over and over and over again, God is giving people a chance to change the trajectory. Yeah, for sure. And I I think what's hard about this story then, and I know you're going to get into it more, Mm -hmm. is that her repentance or her turning is not necessarily changing her mind about who Sarai is. It is that she understandably fleed, Mm -hmm. flued, flood. Fled. uh, Fled, thank you. (laughs) Flued. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> My education is not in English. Uh, she fled to the wilderness. Yeah. And the changing of the mind is that she's going to have to turn and go back into the same situation. So she understandably left a horrendous situation. And her repenting is not that she made like some catastrophic sinful error that's sending her to hell. It is. Right. So you understandably went this way, but I've got to turn you around and go back into that same household. And it doesn't mean that she suddenly has all sorts of positive affectionate feelings for Sarai. Right. But it does mean that she has to walk back into the circumstances for very specific reasons, which again, as we're talking through the story, I, that is, that's probably worthy of an episode in and of itself Mm -hmm. is what does it mean to be willing to walk back into hard circumstances and why would you ever do such a thing? And and we see it here and I know you're going to teach your way through it, but my gosh, that, that is so counterintuitive to almost everybody's approach to everything in life. It is to escape or to medicate or to amuse or to get out of the hard circumstances. And so in this God who's so for Hagar, uh, and so, or Hagar, or however, however Rebecca Reese said yeah, it, yep. um, but in the God who is so for her, he is gently inviting her to go back into some really difficult circumstances. And wow, that is also a pattern in the text when you see Joseph getting thrown into a pit. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you, and you see how Paul had to go through so many different things. And of course, Jesus is turning his face towards the cross. It, a common theme is that redemptive activity tends to be 
how you find yourself in difficult circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. And a a quick aside about Joseph, actually, I was um, talking with my older brother, Caleb, about Mm -hmm. this the other day. Um, And we were kind of laughing about it where we were like, actually, the Joseph story is incredibly relatable from the perspective of the older brothers, because if Caleb and I were like going out to the fields to protect the sheep all day and Simon, our youngest brother, has just been staying in the house like playing video games and then he comes out to the field every once in a while and is like, look at this new coat dad bought me. And also, by the way, I own you because God told me so in a dream. Like, I don't know that we'd sell him into slavery, but there would definitely be a little like pit action happening there where you'd be like, no. But don't you think youngest kids are, especially, I mean, oh you're, you know, your mom and I were 40 when we had Simon. Yeah. So by that stage and he gets to be a teenager, don't you just think the youngest kids get the, I don't know, they get a different end of the stick than oldest kids t- typically Absolutely. do. Absolutely. Caleb sure. and I have had a number of conversations about if we had done that when we were his age. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, like ideologically, I knew all of that. I'm like, nope. I'm going to treat every kid uh-huh. the same way. And I, and I've tried on a number of levels, but you also evolve as a parent and you change and you're like, well, I don't want to treat every kid the same way because the way I treated Caleb in this instance or you in this instance mm-hmm. was, was less than optimal. So I oh, actually yeah. want to learn a little bit in some of this too. Absolutely. <laughs> All so, right. So but- Hagar's, uh, she's turning around. She's going to have to go back in the household. Yeah. So it's this beautiful moment where God comes to her. It's a repetition of the garden where he's like, can you see what's going on here? And are you going to choose to trust in me? Or are you going to choose to trust in your own understanding? And she is like, tell me where I'm going next. Mm. And he says, you have missed the mark. Yeah. Go back, which is just this unbelievable thing. And then what he follows that up with though, in, in verse 10, um, as he says, and the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so they will not be counted for multitude, which is an echo of the Abrahamic promise. And so he says, you've missed the mark. Go back. But if you go back, I will guarantee your future. Mm -hmm. And this is part of what we talked about with Rebecca Ree, I believe, where it's this idea of like that forward idea where this will not come to the end of the story during your lifetime. But in this moment, the reason that you have missed the mark is because you are putting the future in jeopardy. And so you and I talked about that a little bit previously to recording this episode where the idea of her being a woman, a pregnant woman alone in the wilderness is so dangerous. And the idea of her trying to give birth alone in the wilderness is like the the odds of survival there are very, very, very low. Um, and so in this moment, God is saying to her, you, you have missed the mark because you have put the future in jeopardy. And so if you go back, you're the, you will be protected. You will have your child and I will guarantee multitudes upon multitudes of descendants. I will guarantee your future in that sense. Um, and I believe Rebecca Ree had stuff to say about that in terms of that they will be free as a people. And that's part of what he talks about with um, Ishmael, who he says to name God hears or God listens, Mm -hmm. where it's just this beautiful thing as well, where she's like, okay, tell me where I'm going. And he says, you need to go back to protect your future, but don't think that I don't hear how difficult that's going to be for you. Yeah. I think right there then is the answer to the question that we were just talking about, about why would you ever be willing to go back or to, or to participate in difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I think when you have the mindset, and it's an understandable one about life, but when you have the mindset that I have one life to live, 
And this life needs to be as good as possible. Yeah. And good is usually defined as as stress-free yep. as possible and as filled with experience and good things and, and perceived blessings, meaning that happy things are happening to me. And so all of that has to be compressed in my one life. You end up chasing, I think, an illusory version of shalom. Just you, you, I don't think you're ever not anxious when you are living a life that is, I have to squeeze everything I can because YOLO, you know, you only live once, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And so, and, and you see, and, and so you're pursuing something, but you never get there. And this is such a crazy invitation that honestly, I don't always know what to do with mm-hmm. myself because so much of my life was spent building like resume and possibilities and that would open doors for future possibilities. Yeah. And so you say yes to something now to open a future door and her actual invitation about what would create shalom for her is that as she's willing to bear these really difficult circumstances, if she's willing to do that, she may never find herself out of those circumstances, but there will be a future that comes from her willingness and desire that will uh, be open and free and different. And and what she will be willing to do will change the lives of tens, twenties, thousands, ten millions of people. If she's willing to do that, boy, I, how hard is it to get anchored in the kind of life when right. you have one life and you live it on behalf of future generations in ways that maybe then you will never actually see something in there though, I think is a secret for genuine shalom and fulfillment. Some, yeah. I, I don't know how to live that way entirely, but I think somewhere in there, well, clearly something in there is where our true peace comes from. Yeah, no. And I think that was really, really beautifully said. Um, I think with all of that as well, the understanding of uh, what God is asking her to do in that moment. And and it really is. I think he asks this question of her because when he comes to her and says, where have you come from and where are you going? Because she faces him and answers him and doesn't do the blame thing that happens in the garden when Eve says, well, the snake made me do it. And Adam says, Eve made me do it and whatever, right. because she owns what she has done, where she has come from, and then waits for God to tell her where she's going I think that's why he asks this of her and also promises this to her because he can see in that moment, okay, she is entrusting her future to me. Um, and so then he gives her this this command, which is a brutal thing to ask of somebody. Um, and in verse 13, it says, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees for she said, have I also seen here him who sees me? Mm-hmm. Now, this is a really complicated thing from a translation perspective. Um, when I studied this with Noah and Holly Ullman um, a while ago, the thing that Noah was saying about this is that the for she said is probably not actually in there. And the way that the just that the way that the translators did it was a little was a little weird, a little off. And so then the way that she actually names God in this passage, um, I'm looking for it in my notes. I think it's on the previous page. Um, okay, so the name of the Lord in this passage, maybe a better translation of it would have been, then she called the name of the Lord, have I gone on seeing after the one who saw me? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the idea of the whole name of God. So the idea of, um, for she said, have I gone on seeing, the have I gone on seeing after the one who saw me? is the name of God that she says here. Um, There's a couple of super interesting things about that. First of all, this is the first time that God is named. Um, This is also the first time that somebody is seen by God in this way. And we talked about that a little bit in our first episode 
as the idea of a deep soul understanding with intention behind it that comes from bonding and vulnerability and having nowhere to hide. And it's an inherently reciprocal action. And so in this moment, Hagar is seen by God and she also sees God. Which I would just say again, like just there's so much content here. So just sort of Mm -hmm. stop on some of that. That again, her willingness to go back into the circumstance that is going to be so difficult is because she knows that God sees her mm-hmm. and sees what this future is going to be and that she can see that there's a, there's a reciprocity between the two of them. I don't know how you can walk in hard circumstances unless yeah. you are persuaded that God is with and for you and sees you in the midst of it and isn't just going to abandon you then into those circumstances. So it's a really powerful moment in the story. Absolutely. And, and in that moment for God to be asking something so difficult of her, then to reveal himself to her in that way where she can see his heart for her and see all of who God is in that moment, she has to know like God is asking her to do this incredibly difficult thing and then shows her the entirety of his heart for her and the potential reasons behind why he might be asking her to do this. And she's able to see it and recognize it and name it. And it's, it's just such a beautiful moment. Um, The other thing that I really appreciated about this is that it is the God who sees me. Um, And so there, I just think that there's heavy implication in that is it's not just the God who sees the stranger. It's not the God who sees Hagar. It's the God who sees me. And so um, not to do like the, the kitschy Bible study thing where it's like, how do we apply this to our real lives? Mm -hmm. But it is the idea of like the God who sees everybody in the entirety of their circumstances. And if you are willing to be seen in the incredible vulnerability that that requires by God, you will also see God's heart for you. Yeah. Um, And and, and I think like when you say this whole idea of of biblical application or spiritual application, I think that, uh, maybe more responsible way to do it is that as you get familiar with the patterns of scripture, God doesn't stop acting this yeah. way. God didn't like when the, when the script, when the, when the pages of scripture closed, that didn't mean that God stopped doing all of this. So we understand, <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, it's going to apply differently to everybody's life and most people are going through some hard circumstances, but this idea that you're saying is just simply true of how God is in the kingdom. And so I don't know how it applies to everybody except it totally does when you understand that this is God's heart and how God tends to interact with his people. Yeah, absolutely. And so some of the, some of the implications about that that we've talked about is the idea of, um, have I gone on seeing after the God who saw me, is the idea of an ongoing, unique relationship with a radically personal God. Yeah, just say that one more time. Again, I just I feel like mm-hmm. we've got, said it before, but this, there's such um, density in all of this that it's just absolutely. helpful for people listening to just stop and just know that the theme we're teasing around today is this idea of how to walk out life in very hard circumstances. Absolutely. So read that again. Yeah, yeah. An ongoing, unique relationship with a radically personal God. Yeah, for sure. Um, And so because the thing is, is that her saying, have I gone on seeing, is that is not an end of an action. And we've talked about this a little bit in the past that Hebrew has present tense and past tense. Sorry. In terms of like they have an action that has been completed and an action that has not yet been completed. And so she has this moment where she's like, I am continuing to see God. Like this is not a one and done sort of situation where he's like, okay, quick, pull back the veil. Okay, now it's back and you don't get to see God anymore. She's like, no, I have seen God and I am continuing to see God and Mm -hmm. he is continuing to see me. And so it is an ongoing like 
present and future oriented relationship with God who sees all of the entirety of your circumstances and also allows you to see his heart for you. Love that. Um, so there's a lot in there. Um, but the last piece of this that I think is really beautiful is as we have been talking about um, the idea of like the prequels and the sequels and the original trilogy and how we how everything connects to everything else. Um, in verse 14, it says, therefore, the well was called and I have no idea how to pronounce that. Um, do you want to take a stab at that? <laughs> Beer Lahai Roy? That sounds great. Lahai. I don't need to take a stab at it at all. That sounds okay. perfect. I, I apologize to anyone who would like to correct my pronunciation. Um, but the the well where she meets God there, the, the name of that well is the well of the living one who sees me. Um, and the implication in here that I really, really love... Um, Okay, maybe maybe a brief recap, right? Stranger foreign woman alone in the wilderness comes to the well of the living one who sees me, is confronted by God and is able to name God. And this is maybe a little cheaty because you know where I'm going with mm-hmm. this, but where is the other place yeah. in the Bible that we see this? Well, I think even with that being cheaty, with, with some level of biblical familiar, familiarity, we're talking about how uh, non-conventional it was for Jesus to approach the woman at the well in Samaria. Exactly. So another outsider, a non-person of Israel who has is not living in, in the best of circumstances. These are more self-inflicted perhaps than, than Hagar's are, but she is clearly not in the most acceptable of circumstances right now with all yeah. these husbands. But it, it's amazing what happens there. Yeah, and I just, I love the implication that this is a repetition of the moment where the first person to see and name God in the Old Testament is Hagar, and the first person to see and name Jesus for who he is in the New Testament is this moment at the well. Well, and I think going back to this idea of who does God approach, and that God is approaching people that even maybe are not looking to approach him, like he clearly sees her. Jesus sees mm-hmm. her, knows her circumstances, but somehow she's not like running, she's not trying to hide. Somehow the way God is approaching her less than optimal circumstances is invitational. And again, this idea of God that we have to sort of clean ourselves up or we have to pursue rightly to pull his cosmic chain or or press the right button. He just simply is seeing her and names her circumstances. And yet she knows somehow that even though he's doing that, Mm -hmm. that he's for her in doing that. And so she's not running. It turns out to be an incredible moment and experience for her at the well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And part of what we've talked about with some of the implications of that as well is that if one of the major themes throughout the Bible is whose judgment are you going to trust and who are you going to follow, um, is that the implication of God coming to the Egyptian slave woman in the wilderness who doesn't even follow him rather than him coming to Abram and Sarai who in that moment have trusted in their own judgment in, in Abram trying to have a child with Hagar he is trying to fulfill God's promise to him through his own means mm-hmm. instead of trusting in God and trusting in God's judgment, which again goes back to the garden, like most things in the Bible. Um, and so, uh, but Hagar comes to that moment and chooses to trust in God and trust mm-hmm. in his judgment rather than trust in her own understanding of what's going on, which is why she does ultimately go back to Sarai. Um, but it happens again in the new Testament and we see it over and over and over again where the, the priests, the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, the whatever, the people who have, as you've 
put it all of the fancy letters after after their name, the ones who have biblical literacy, maybe, or biblical understanding. Familiarity, just familiarity, not literacy. Familiarity, yes. yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, are trusting in their own judgment and interpretation of scripture, and because of that, they are not able to see Jesus for who he is. And this woman at the well, who is a Gentile, and also not in maybe the best circumstances societally, is able to see God and name him and trust in his judgment instead of her own. For sure. I, that is another part of this story, is that the story of Jesus and Nicodemus is actually the outlier story, meaning that a, a fancy-lettered, accomplished office of authority kind <laughs> yeah. of a person is one who seems to be seeking out who Jesus actually is. That's the outlier. That's the unusual thing. But if you think about most people's exposure to Western evangelical Christianity, the people who have the offices of authority and the power and everything, and and then the assumed pipeline with God that is so much more reliable than, than somebody else's pipeline mm-hmm. are the ones with the fancy letters, the ones who have the authorities, uh, the positions of authority and the offices of authority. I have fairly extensive conversations in most of my classes that hardly I have found in my life that even though I do have fancy letters and even though I've been given offices of authority, that for sure none of those things translate to a pipeline with God and, and how often I end up unfortunately relying on some of my own perceived sense of learnedness and it gets in the way. Uh, It totally gets in the way. And so most often the pattern of scripture is that God is coming to the people that you would not expect God to come to at all and is walking away from the Mm -hmm. people who look like they have all the, 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 the shinied up outside. And and again, the letters and the learnedness, and it doesn't mean don't go to school. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means that having fancy letters and offices of authority does not live in a one-to-one relationship with genuine kingdom life. And in fact, I think often it stands in the way of genuine kingdom life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think just the last piece of that that I have is that if I were to kind of distill the Hagar story or Hagar story kind of down to a couple of things, because that was so much information in the last four episodes about this. very helpful. Um, Yeah, so kind of to bring it back to to a summary point, is the idea of bringing that theme back over and over and over in the Bible of um, can you see where you are and whose judgment are you going to trust in? And that in that moment, like there is such phenomenal, there there's such a beautiful, profound level of forgiveness and gentleness and kindness and lovingness coming from God in that moment, even to the people who don't follow him. It's not a conditional relationship that that goodness, that kindness, that love, and that forgiveness is pursuing everybody, Mm -hmm. regardless of whether or not this is actually the God that you follow or believe in. Um, This is still there and present for you. You just have to turn your face to it. And so this idea of, can you see where you are? Can you see where you're going and who are you going to trust in? And in that moment, the profound levels of beauty and forgiveness coming from God that then allows for a one-to-one relationship where you see God and God sees you. And there is just this beautiful like invitation in that to a new way forward and a mm-hmm. new future. I love that. Maybe we can uh, start to wrap this episode just with some personal sort of experiences with God around that. Yeah. I, I don't, I, we didn't plan for any of that and I'm going to have to think I've got some off the top of my head. Maybe, I've got but one. Can we do just one quick, I feel like we need like bunny trail music. Meaning Ooh. that when it's time for a little bunny trail from whatever it is we're talking about that day, there's yeah. like a, a music designation that says quick bunny trail. We are coming back, but, <laughs> but a quick bunny trail. So we need somebody 
Let's just pause for a couple seconds and then we're going to have one of the producers put in some bunny trail music here. I would love if it was just like an awkward five second silence. But also when you said like bunny trail music, the only thing that happened in my head was the um, Perry the Platypus theme song from Phineas and Ferb. I think that'd be perfect. That one. I think that's the right one right now. So let, let's pause to give our producers some time to put in Phineas and Ferb. One, two, three, pause. Doobie doobie dooba doobie doobie dooba. Okay, so now I think we're officially in the bunny trail. Just one thing. I mentioned it with Rebecca Reese. She had not studied it very Mm -hmm. carefully, but it is a troubling part of this passage when it says that Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. Oh, yeah, totally. And I would just suspect, and I think I know, that many Christians would probably look at something like that and, and, and then even relate it at the time of this recording Israel and Gaza are in a, in a, in a massively oh. difficult and brutal conflict right now. It's and would look, and would look at that and say, see, this is exactly what happened is that the people of Gaza, the Palestinians are these wild donkey of uh, donkeys of people that their hands will ever be against, you know, and, and they just can't be controlled. They're sort of subhuman, like all of that. And mm. I think just to one comment about scripture and one comment about Gaza, if I can sort of yeah. like, hesitatingly go into that, that topic for just a minute. Um, but the scripture comment is that to be a wild donkey in that context was actually an incredible compliment that would have brought, uh, Hagar, I think a fair amount of peace about it yeah. because to, to be wild or to be a, a horse or donkey or stallion in that time meant that unlike her future in which she's always going to be beholden, to uh, Abram and Sarai, mm-hmm. her future coming from her, Ishmael will not because a wild donkey was seen as independent and free and not beholden. And so her willingness to go back into her circumstances, mm-hmm. the promise that was so um, peaceful then for her is, is if she was willing to do that, then her son would be able to live a free kind of life. And God gave her that promise, which is really stunning. So to be a wild donkey is not to have a, a, a subhuman IQ level that just, you know, it's not is, a derogatory, oh, right? not at it's all. It was, it, was, it was a beautiful promise for sure. It was. And it's what I think of what sustained her in that time. I think with the Israel Gaza thing, just one quick comment about that. That is my whole background is just to try to observe society and understand some of the complexity. And I think what's troubling about this particular conflict is people just can't seem to get into any of the nuance of it that you you sort of just pick one side or the other. And Mm. there's just so many protests going on around the world about Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. And, and, um, and then of course Hamas, the leadership of of, uh, Gaza came into Israel and just did unthinkable, horrific kinds of crimes. And I think maybe just one thing that people can sort of parse out rather than getting swept up into all of this stuff is to recognize that for sure, there's all kinds of Palestinian Palestinian people Mm. who are, being brutalized right now. It's horrific. That, yeah, are not complicit in what was going on. And at the same time, on the other side, it's it's understandable to say that if left to their own devices, one specific segment of people in Palestine called Hamas leadership, their whole uh, reason for being is to wipe out Israel. So left to their own devices, they are going to perpetrate these brutal crimes. And so to just separate it out and understand there's human life on all sides of it. That is just really terrible. And, uh, and to, to, to just single out one side or the other without any nuance, however you end up approaching all of this, it just gets so frustrating when people just neatly divide people into one camp or the other without trying to understand all of the different dimensions of it with that. And I think 
Christians would really benefit in all conversations is the point, wherever you land on this one, just from all conversations of trying to understand all the different sides of that versus, oh gosh, I just, you know, the news report was this, or somebody in social media said this, or some professor in an institution said this, just to be critically thinking about these things, I think is really helpful and certainly not applying something from the Hagar, Hagar story as proof that yeah. the Palestinians will never be able to be controlled because of this promise in scripture. I mean, just think about the devastating impact that has when we, yeah. our hermeneutic of scripture doesn't at all reflect what scripture is saying. So it's just interesting bunny trail. And now we can probably Phineas and Ferb our <laughs> way back uh, to all of that. But just mm-hmm. was something that we will certainly talk about in my classes because we have to talk about social ethics all the time. Absolutely. About how do you live within the complexity and the nuance of these things without just getting sort of lemmed where you're falling off a cliff with one side or the other on the whole thing. Interesting. Yeah. And I think the thing that I will say about that is that at the root of it, for me, it comes down to um, protection of human life Mm -hmm. as a as a beautiful, valuable thing. And I think that is something that we are seeing uh, destroyed right now. And it's uh, it is horrific and horrific. It is indeed. Um, Yeah. So. All right. So back to the uh, Hagar story. Um, Wrap this episode up. So any sort of personal example that you can think of where. God invited you into something difficult, but you also felt seen at the same time? Yeah, actually, absolutely. Just very recently, uh, which is funny because I hadn't connected these dots in my own head until you brought up this question. Then I was like, oh, that's exactly what was happening here. Uh-huh. Um, but I think without going too much into into detail on it, because um, this is, uh, I very much am a uh, anti-testimony person in the sense that I'm like, I, I very much do not believe in commoditizing my faith experience. You do? Um, I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't know you had any energy. It's not like I protested that in one of my classes actively, um, or anything like that. Um, but, uh, I did, I had an experience recently where I was kind of questioning some things, um, in terms of my future after graduation, I was like, I feel like I have this very clear path forward in terms of what I am being called into, um, but kind of got into this whole like thought spiral around like, but what about this? But what about that? How is this going to affect me? How is that going to affect me? Am I going to be able to do this? And and all of it was very much like kind of spiraling, spiraling downward. Um, and as I was in the middle of that whole thought process, um, decided to go for a walk and there was kind of this like weird set of circumstances all along the way. And I've talked about this a lot with mom. I don't know if I've talked about it with you as much. Um, but it often to me feels like my relationship with God is like a cosmic dad joke in a way where I'm just kind of living my life and God is up there like knee slapping. And I'm (laughs) like, I get it. It's not funny, but I get it. Um, and so as I went on this walk, it was like, for whatever reason, I chose to go for a walk, even though it was getting dark. And it's like, I don't live in an unsafe area, but in an area where I maybe shouldn't be going for a walk at night. Um, and so, but decided to go for a walk anyways, for whatever reason. And then went out the opposite door that I normally go out, which then allowed me to see the sunset, which prompted me to go on a completely different route than I normally go for my walk. So just like weird, weird little circumstantial things all along the way. I'm still in the middle of this thought process. Um, and as I was on my walk, passed by a church that is near my apartment building and felt very called to like go in and help serve at their weekly 
dinner that they were doing. And yeah, I you was just like, walked into a church where you didn't know anybody. Yeah, because you felt the prompting of the spirit to do that. It was it was just one of the most bizarre experiences of my life. And there was like a number of other smaller things along the way that, as I was going on this walk, I was like, "Oh, this thing had to happen for me to have." the dinner on my radar and then I had to see that thing to think about that maybe I should go serve in there and like this it was just it was very weird all along the way where it was just little like breadcrumb trails all the way to this circumstance um even down to like as I was standing there outside of this church and was like this is so weird am I really gonna go in and be like I don't know anybody but can I help with dinner tonight um that I was like man I wish I had somebody that I could call and talk to about this right now and in that moment my brother called me and I was like okay this is now now you're being obnoxious um (laughs) and so ended up going in and helping serving with the dinner it was a really it was a beautiful experience it turned out they really needed help that night they were short a server and it ended up being incredibly busy and whatever and so I went in and I served and I was helping with this dinner and everything and then as I was leaving And I was walking back to my apartment. I was like, well, that's real great and all. Like, I'm glad that I was able to go help them. I'm, I'm glad that it worked out. I'm glad that I followed this prompting. Um, but, but what does this have to do with me? And what does this have to do with like my questions that I was having earlier about my future and where I might be going and where I might end up and whatever. Um, and in kind of that moment of me being like, okay, but what about me? I like very clearly and almost bluntly but also kind of in a playful way um very clearly heard it's not about you and I was like oh (laughs) okay so me having all of these questions about my future and where I might end up and why I might end up there and all of that um it's not about me and I'm not being called to that uh potential path because of what it will do for me but because I am needed by that community Mm. Um, and it was just a really, yeah, beautiful moment of, can you, can you see where you are? Can you see where you're going and who are you going to trust in? And in that moment, I chose to go into the church and trust in that, even though that was bizarre and I have massive social anxiety. So that was super (laughs) uncomfortable for me. Um, and yeah. And then in that moment received answers to my questions, um, and, and was told that I had Mm. missed the mark and how I was thinking about it. That's a fascinating story. I just wonder how many of our stories are along those lines where we think one thing about the path moving forward and where we're going to, again, find that sense of shalom or whatever. I'm sure when yeah. Hagar ran out to the wilderness, there was such an incredible sense of relief just to get out of Dodge and, and to have to turn around and go back into it. But yeah, I think my example follows a really similar one. It's just a quick story about I, certainly when I was getting established as a professor in university life, I had the opportunity for a fairly... I think probably cushy 10 year track kind of position after several years of teaching that was going to be available to me. And I just knew that I knew that I knew that I wasn't supposed to do that. And it was so, it didn't diminish the years that I had put into trying to even get to that point where you get the opportunity for a cushy 10 year track position. But I certainly had ideas about maybe where and where I should be going and, and what would be the best way to accomplish all those things. And it's just amazing how you end up in Genesis three life so quickly where oh you're gosh, sort of yeah. deciding your own future and everything. And in that instance, I really, I knew I was going to risk uh, friendships and relationships with people who had been so supportive and helpful. 
Uh, and I didn't want to do that in any way, shape or form, but I also knew that I was not supposed to say yes to any further opportunities about that. And it did it. And, and then saying no, I did continue to teach, but it was just in a different capacity. It certainly compromised my resume in terms of what pe- there wouldn't be any resume um, consultant that would say, yeah. this is the way to keep doing that. And it was really hard to live in that limbo space. But I ended up teaching in that institution for the better part of 15 years in different capacities. And it also opened up many other opportunities I would have never experienced that became sort of life changing had I said yes to what seemed like the obvious choice in front of me. Yeah. Uh, it was a harder path. And again, hard is relative. I mean, compared to how most of the rest of the world is living right now, it's not exactly hard <laughs> to say no to a vocational opportunity. Yeah. But I think to just not blindly move forward in vocational opportunities just because it seems like it's the next right thing. And in, in the language of who is it, Elsa in Frozen 2, the next Anna, right thing. Think, yeah, yeah. Anna, well, whoever it is. But, you know, you, I just think we just assume these are the metrics by which we need to keep advancing as opposed to just stepping back and saying, hey, I might have to say no to conventional wisdom yeah. to go back towards something if I really want to experiencing some kind of, of peace. But it goes back to what we've been saying this whole episode. I don't know where else you get peace from unless you're living within the God who sees you yeah. and you see that God. I can almost weather any storm if I'm in that position, but I could be having the heights of vocational success and that kind of life absent from the God who sees is just, yeah. it's, it's no way to live at the end of the day. So it's, it, it, there's a lot in the story mm-hmm. and I love how you summarize it all. And I, and I just love the theme that's there in scripture that God really does tend to come to the people that you wouldn't expect God to come to. And those people end up living really different kinds of lives than what would normally be anticipated to make a successful life. So anyway, yeah. to wrap up this part of the Yeah, I just have one more thought about all of that as well, is that one thing um, that we see also like over and over again in in scripture, and we see it again in the Hagar story as well. And I think Rebecca Reed talked about this a little bit, that um, there's kind of a part two to Hagar's story where she goes back into the wilderness with Ishmael and all of that, um, is that we can see... We can see these moments where it might not necessarily be the action that is incorrect or that has missed the mark, but the heart behind it as well. And so in this moment, we see that Hagar has gone into the wilderness and God is like, you missed it. You got to go back. And then a couple of chapters later, she goes into the wilderness and God is like, got it. And I got you and you're in the right place now. Mm -hmm. And so it's even that moment as well where I was questioning as I was out on my walk, I was questioning, is this the right trajectory? Am I going in the right direction? Am I, am I doing the right thing here? And it was just this really interesting moment for me where it was like, no, the trajectory of your action is still correct. The trajectory of your heart is not. Mm. Um, And that is something that we see over and over again in the scripture as well, is that you can be doing the right thing for the wrong reasons um, or do the wrong thing for the right reasons. And so it is kind of this thing where you have to line up both trajectories. For sure. If that makes sense. Totally does. I love it. Well, I love how much work you did in the story. Thanks for all the work. It's fun to have a four-part series on on Hagar and and just a way to start getting into the, the themes of scripture. So we should probably wrap up our episode here. Absolutely. Thanks everyone for listening to Deeper Magic. Uh, Say bye, Anna. Bye, Anna. I'm Peter, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, guys.
Deep Magic is produced by Audio on the Rocks, and our music for this episode is Auroras of Saturn by Music L Files. You can head on over to filmmusic.io and find that there, all licensed under Creative Commons 4.0, viewable on the site as well. 